you. You can turn to the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. My name's Joe Crummy. I'm one of the leaders here of Christ Central. I'm going to continue today, and I'm going to pick up where Brent left off last week from Romans 5. And first of all, I just want to bring greetings from Christ Central Church, Charlottetown. Ollie and I were able to be there last weekend to help serve with our church plant there, and we had an excellent couple of days together, so they want to send uh, their greetings. And uh, we've been praying for uh, Jody Ward. She's speaking this weekend at Green Hill Lake Camp, and there's a camp out there for, I think it's age 7 to nine, or right around that age group, and so she sent a Facebook message last night to say they're having an excellent time, and many kids are responding to Jesus, which is fantastic, and we're praying the same thing for us here today as well. And happy Valentine's Day! I know some of you hate Valentine's Day, but that's okay, because today we're going to talk about and we're going to celebrate God's love for us, and no matter what state you're in, God loves us you. And so that makes today extra special as we open up God's Word and we get to see, as we've been going through this series in Romans, the gospel of God. And we've entitled that because it really is the gospel of God. It's God's good news to us. So it's not something we're trying to whip up and that we're trying to manipulate to say, oh, it's good news for us. It's the gospel of God. That's God revealing and speaking His plan of salvation to us. So it's from God for us, it's the gospel of God. And today we're going to look deeper into another aspect of that great gospel, this good news for us. And Brent spoke last week from the beginning of Romans 5 and this incredible message of what God's done for us in Christ and how the benefits of being justified with Christ, just as if I'd never sinned. I'm right with God and how that leads to having peace with God, that we're no longer enemies of God. We have access to God. We have hope in the glory of God. We can rejoice in our sufferings that the Holy Spirit has poured out the love of the Father into our hearts. We can experience subjectively this objective great truth of God's love. And so if you weren't able to listen to that message, I encourage you to get online to listen to it this week, just as I did. It was an excellent message to hear. And I'm sure, and this is how sort of Paul writes, because you have to remember, Paul wrote this letter to Rome. He's writing a letter, and as we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, we see that Paul, in writing his letter, is preparing, possibly, for some objections to what he's writing. And so he almost answers questions before they can be asked. And this is old school writing letters and trying to understand who you're writing the letter to and what do you think they might be saying in response to what you're communicating. And so on verse, we're going to pick up verse 12, and it starts with a therefore, and as Brent said last week, we have to ask ourselves, what's it there for? And many scholars in that believe Paul is, he's getting ready and he's anticipating questions that people are going to ask as they're reading his letter. So it's like people have read verses 1 to 11, and they are then going to object to something that Paul said. Because just think about it. Paul has just said this incredible truth that we can be reconciled to God, that we can actually be friends with God, that we can be brought back into relationship with God. What? That's an incredible claim when you think about it, that Paul said we can be reconciled to God through only one person, Jesus Christ. It's really a spectacular claim. And I think Paul's probably anticipating some questions, and I think maybe we come up with some questions as well. So I'm going to give you a couple to see if they, in a sense, resonate 
with you when you hear some of these great truths. You might ask this question, how could Paul make such a confident claim in light of the undeniable power of death and sin in the world? Is Paul maybe just kind of losing his mind and he's trying to be too triumphal in his message? Because I think we'd all say there's an undeniable power of death and sin in the world. Another question you might ask is this, how can one person's sacrifice, as noble as maybe it might be, bring about such incredible benefits to so many? How could one person influence the world by their sacrifice? You might ask this question, how can that one act of one person, and for us, we're saying 2,000 plus years ago, even in Paul's day, how can that one act of Jesus' life, death, resurrection really change my present condition? And go beyond even that, how can that one act change my future condition as well, my eternal condition? Those are some of the questions Paul's probably anticipating. Those are some of the questions we have as well. Paul, that's an audacious claim that we can be reconciled to God, that we can be made right with God through Jesus Christ. But, but, what about this? But the power of sin, the power of death in the world, what about that? How can one person make such a change throughout history? And not only can can it change history, how can it change me both today and in the future? And that's what we, that's what Paul addresses, and that's where we're going to pick things up. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to start back at verse 9, even though mainly we're going to look at 12 to 21. And so I have it up here on the screen, and uh, Will can, we can read it together. And just for, to kind of bring some continuity to last week, we'll begin at verse 9. So Paul says this, Since we have now been justified by his blood, he's referring to Jesus, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? That's through Jesus. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through the one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. So if we think about the Ten Commandments and the law that was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Continuing verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is a pattern, or some translations say a type, of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act 
resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Woof! There's a lot of stuff in there, and we're going to try to flesh some of that out. So Paul begins in this section by contrasting the results of being either under the heading in Adam or in Christ, and says that Adam, and we're going all the way back to, we're talking about Adam as in Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and says that Adam is a pattern or a type of the one to come in Jesus Christ. And so I don't know if uh, I just remember in high school, English, we always did this. We always took, you know, we were taking Shakespeare and everything. And somewhere in there, one of the questions would be asked, who is like the Christ figure in the Shakespearean story? Like who represents Christ? Who is like a pattern or a type of Christ? And we always said, oh, it's this person. This is all the reasons why. That's what Paul's saying here. Adam is a type, a pattern of Jesus to come. Now, that's really interesting because Sometimes it's easier to look at other examples from the Old Testament. So you could take Noah, and you could take Noah's Ark. Very familiar story, even if you don't know much about the Bible, you've probably heard of Noah and Noah's Ark. And we can say that Noah's Ark is a pattern or a type of Christ to come, because you had to get in the Ark in order to be saved. So to be saved from the flood, you had to get in the Ark. And in the New Testament, in order to be saved from sin and that, you need to get in Jesus. So can you see how Noah's Ark is a type of or a pattern of Christ. And we can continue going. We might take Joseph. If you remember Joseph in his story from the Old Testament, sold into slavery. They told his dad that he was killed, and he went to Egypt, but he was alive. And God raised him up, and years later, he helped actually save his brothers. And we can say, look, that's Joseph betrayed by his brothers. That points to Jesus. One day, Jesus betrayed by his brothers and looked like he was dead. He was dead, but then he arose and God used him to save. And you say, Joseph is a type of Christ. And David was a type of Christ, him being king. And I can go through other examples. Now I find it easy to take Noah, I can take Joseph, I can take David, you can even take Moses, Abraham, and you can say, those point to Jesus. I can make the connection. This is a more difficult one. Because what's famous about Adam He failed big time. You guys are being really polite here in the front row. Good job. Good answers. He sinned. He failed. He's famous for failure. So how in the world is Adam a pattern or a type? Because you don't, I don't think of Jesus and failure and sin very often, do you? Those usually aren't in this. We weren't singing about today. Jesus, he wears the victor crown because he failed. He was the greatest loser. So what's going on? What's Paul talking about? How can Paul say that Adam is a type, a pattern to Christ? I find it a lot harder to make those connections compared to the other examples in the Old Testament. Is it crazy to regard Adam as a type or a pattern of Christ since he was a sinner and he failed God? So the question has to be, in what way then does Paul see Adam as a type of Christ? And this is where we get 
the answer. Adam represents, and he's a pattern and a type of Christ in this way, and that one person, one person represents the whole. So that whenever, whatever that person achieves or loses, you achieve or lose. So can you think of an Old Testament example with David and a certain guy named Goliath? Man, we got good answers in the front row. I love it. Do you remember what they said? Goliath represented the Philistines, and they're like, he's going to represent us. So whatever happens to him happens to the rest of us. So he was the giant, so he was able to say, how about we do this? Instead of thousands of us going to war, I'll fight on behalf of my people. You choose somebody from the Israelites. We'll go at it, and whoever wins, that affects everybody. That didn't, and the other like, oh, I don't know about this one. And so they waited day after day because nobody would go out to fight because they're like, if we take on this guy in one-on-one, we're going to lose and we're going to be wiped out. Do you see how one person represented the whole? That's an example from the Old Testament. And this is the concept, oh, there we go, we're going to keep going, of being a representative. Someone who a relationship represents or stands in for someone else with authority. And in philosophy and theology, Sometimes the term gets used federal headship because federal, I think it's from Latin, is the word for covenant. So theological terms and even in philosophical terms, you can get people say it's a federal covenant or a, cov- uh, sorry, federal headship or a covenant headship. One person represents the whole. Now I'm going to take some time to explain this because in our culture, we don't quite have this much because we're very individualistic, aren't we? <laughs> we're very like, I have my rights, thank you very much, and I'll do what I choose to do. And so I'm going to give you some examples from our Western world. In other cultures, in past, even today, this concept, this understanding of this truth is easier to relate to. It's not so much, I find, in the West. So in our Western world, here's some examples of this whole thing of being able to say, we have one representative who has authority to make decisions on behalf of everyone else. Quickly, here's a couple of examples. We're used to maybe hearing about a union representative. So Angela, my wife, works for Passport Canada. She's in a union, PSAC, the Public Service Alliance of Canada, and they nominate and they have like a representative who speaks on behalf of all their union. So if that person signs a contract, that person makes decisions when they're negotiating something like that, that affects everybody else. And they've given authority to that person to make those decisions. So that's an example, a union representative. We have elected representatives, don't we? So even in democracies, we uh, vote people in, and they represent all of us, for better or for worse, as we always find out year after year. And whether sometimes it's a national leader or even the legislature, when the different MPs come together, they make decisions on behalf of everyone else, and it affects every single one of us. Even so much so on big decisions like going to war. Because we don't always have time to communicate all the evidence, things happen quickly, and we don't have time to take a whole vote, our officials can declare war, whether we like it or not. And we've seen this in history. A country declares war, the president, prime minister, the government declares war. And you can say, I got nothing against that country. It doesn't matter. 
you're part of the nation, you are now at war. What a person decided up here affects everyone. And we see this also legally as well. When a defendant enters a relationship with legal counsel, the lawyer represents the client in court and has literally what we call power of attorney to act for the client in various ways, either to the benefit or the detriment of the client. So choose wisely. (laughs) You can say, Joe, why are you trying to say all this? Why are you emphasizing this point? As I said, what I find when we talk about these things with people, this is usually what we get, is people think, look, I'm in charge of my own life. I'll make my decisions, and people take ownership to say, I'll either make it in this world or I won't, but it's up to me. And our culture feeds that, doesn't it? Come on, Mark, you can be anything you want to be. Come on, if you believe in yourself enough, you can be whatever you want to be. And it's up to you or it's on you. So you can make it or break it based on you. And our North American culture and work ethic feeds into that big time. So it is a shock to us when we hear Paul saying here that one person and their decision has affected everybody else. And Paul's saying in these verses this, sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and because of that, death entered the world because of sin, because death is the penalty for sin, and death spread to all human beings because all sinned. And Paul says, because all sinned, what he's talking about, he said that verb sinned is in past tense. It's a past action. So Paul's saying that the whole human race sinned in one single action back in Adam. Now this is a difficult one for us to get our heads around. So I'm going to say it again. Because most of the time we would say something like this. We would say that humans all die because we're like Adam. We sin like Adam. But Paul goes even a step further and he says this. We are all in Adam so that when he sinned, so did we. So Paul is saying, and this answers to some degree a question we have. Paul's saying this. Therefore, disease and death reign. That's like they have power just as much over nice people as cruel people. So that's one of our questions we always have. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's because sin and death reign. It has a power. It rules. It's not just a concept. It's not just we're talking philosophy. It has power in us through, because of Adam. Therefore, death reigns just as much over nice people as cruel people. And Paul's asking, if death is the wages of guilt for sin, then why does death reign, that's rule, why does it have power so universally regardless of individual sin? And his answer is, as did Adam, so did us. Paul's saying, because we have this argument, don't we? Look, I'm a good person. I don't break any of the Ten Commandments. I'm a good person. Why am I affected by sin? Why does God count sin against me? Paul's saying, even if he didn't break a command, which I think is going to be even difficult to prove, 
even if you didn't think a lustful thought, all those different things, Adam did, and in Adam we are all guilty. We are guilty for what Adam did. And Paul goes on to say, because we think of this, Paul goes on to say, when the law was at it, that's the Ten Commandments and all these things that people knew what God expected, people knew where the boundaries were, people knew right from wrong, that didn't actually help things. It actually made it worse. <laughs> Which is kind of counterintuitive to what we think. Because a typical Jewish view would be this. God gave the law to counteract the sinful human impulse, but Paul says the law came in to actually increase the trespass. What does Paul mean by that? You like say, what? Joe, you're messing with my mind here. Good. <laughs> Paul's saying the law was at it, so before you could say, well, I didn't know right from wrong. I didn't know. And that's kind of the lawyer part of us. We can say between Adam and Moses, there was no Ten Commandments. How, how were we supposed to know that we were doing wrong? So you think, if the law is given, there, there's my answer. I didn't know before. Now I'm guilt-free because now I know the Ten Commandments. So there, Paul's saying, when the Ten Commandments were given, it cr- increased guilt and trespass even more. Because now people weren't just sinning out of their conscience. Maybe now people willfully we're sinning. And we're going to see in a couple weeks, Paul said, I wouldn't even know what it was to covet if it hadn't said, do not covet. Don't be jealous about other people's stuff. As soon as you know that, you're like, oh, man. So the law get at, and you think that's going to solve everything. If we knew right from wrong, then we'd be able to not sin. Paul said it made it even worse because now we willfully sin. Because there's something within us through Adam that makes us want to be independent of God. So we worship other things. We take the Lord's name in vain. We dishonor our parents. We lust after other things. We lie. We steal. And the guilt increases. So obviously, the principle Paul's trying to nail home, I'm trying to nail home, has major implications for every person on planet Earth. No matter how nice we are, how hard we work to earn our salvation, we are stuck in Adam, and we need to get out of Adam and into Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear this, and I've had this happen many times trying to explain this to people, there's something, maybe it's just me, so I'll just, I won't put this on you, I'll just say it's within me. There's something within me that rises up that I don't like this. There's something that makes me go, God, okay, time out here. Just hold on a second. If you allow me humbly just to have a dialogue with you, doesn't something rise up within you and say, God, this isn't fair? Am I the only one who thinks that sometimes? Janice, thank you for being honest. I saw that little hand, okay? There's something that rises up in our culture and in me that says, that's not fair. And why is it not fair? There's two reasons wrestle through why it's not fair. One is, why should I be judged for what someone else did? Isn't that our reaction? Why should I be judged for what Adam did? Now, God, if you hit the reset button and you put me in the garden, I can guarantee you this, I would not have sinned. I'm just saying this for point of discussion, okay? And some of us might not be so bold to actually say it out loud, but we're thinking it. God, it's not fair. 
You put Adam there, not me. He sinned. Why should I suffer for what he If I was there, I would have at least maybe held out a bit longer. And that's what we think. We want to be, God, that's not fair. There's something rises up within us. Why should I be judged for what Adam did? And the second part is this. God, I didn't get to choose my representative. So at least with Angela and her union, they get to vote on, I, at least I get a say on who's going to represent us. At least in government, as imperfect as it is, at least I have a say. Don't I have a vote. My vote counts. At least I have a say in who's going to represent. At least as a client, I get to choose my lawyer. I get to choose my representative. And we can feel unjust in saying, God, I didn't choose Adam. So two things really irk us, I think, if we're honest with ourselves. God, it's not fair. I get judged by what somebody else did. And secondly, I didn't even ask for that person to represent me. I want someone who's the best. I want someone who's going to give all the right answers and be more like me. I want someone to represent me who's going to be like me because I think I know best. So you've got to let that sink for a minute. Paul's saying, and the Bible's saying, Adam, his decision affects every single one of us. All through history, right today, affects our kids, it affects you and me. Is that fair? That's what I'm asking. That's what rises up within me. I don't think that's fair. I don't like that someone else, I have to live with the consequences of somebody else's, and I didn't even ask for that person. I didn't even ask for Adam to represent me. Do you follow me? Those are the things that we're battling through. And I'm hoping that if you're starting to think that way, that's good. Because you're starting to get it. We're starting to think this way. It's good. We're close to understanding how God did it. Because first of all, no one could choose a representative for us as well as God. So in these internal discussions that I'm having, I realize quite quickly I'm pretty arrogant. I'm saying to God, God, you chose Adam. He didn't just choose Adam. He created Adam. He created Adam without sin, made in the image of God. And I'm saying to God, I would have picked someone better. God just didn't choose Adam. He created Adam. So do I think I could choose someone better than God? Secondly, because he created Adam to be our representative Adam was perfectly created and designed to act exactly as you and I would have acted in the same situation. So no, God gave us the right, fair, federal, covenantal head in Adam, and so we are in Adam because we actually sinned in him. And therefore, as I say, we have to live with the consequences of being in Adam. And there's a lot of them if we line them up in verses 12 to 21. I'll go through it quickly. In Adam, there's sin, there's death, and that's spiritual death and physical death. Disobedience, trespasses, judgment, condemnation, and we're sinners. And not only that, sin reigned. Sin actually has a power. It's not just a concept. Sin reigns. That's actual power, and it rules 
over us. So we're not so used to, maybe as some of our British friends, of having this concept of ruling and reigning. British monarchy rules and reigns. It doesn't quite have as much bite today as it did years ago. We're not used to that. But there's a power at work. And Paul's saying, sin reigns. It has power over us. It rules over us. And death reigns and rules over us. And we know that today because people die every single day physically. And every week, I know, and as our church has gotten bigger, we just can't do it every week. I know someone has died every week that's affected someone in our church. Every week. So we could get up here every week and say, look, we give our condolences and we give our love and our support to every week we could do it because death affects everyone. It rules and We can't stop. As much as medical technology is here, death still reigns. It has power. It rules over us. That's the consequences of being in Adam. So I'm really trying to hammer home the reality of the bad news that we're stuck in Adam. And that's how God sees it. And the truth that God deals with us in and through our representative is actually very good and liberating. And you're like, what? Joe, you just spent half an hour talking about how bad it is that God sees a representative. But here's the good news. If Follow the logic here. If Adam's disobedience is our disobedience, then hypothetically, if there was an obedient man, a perfect second Adam, he would be able to be our covenantal federal head. Therefore, he would represent us before God, and through him, we could have life in him, as opposed to being left in Adam, or as opposed to being left to ourselves to try to represent us before God. And the good news is this. Adam was a pattern, a type of the one to come, because he was going to represent all of humanity. Thus, under a new covenantal or federal head, Jesus we can have, as we read in verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we can now receive reconciliation with God. Therefore, being in Christ means we can have peace with God that our individualistic and self-sufficiency could never offer. That is good news. And as we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, we are transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. And now we're getting to the good news because Jesus is the second Adam. And Paul assures us that the grace of God abounds even more than sin, and those who are in Christ can now stand, listen, as rulers because of the work of Jesus Christ, our second Adam. Therefore, from Christ's obedience, we see these consequences. Instead of sin, there's grace. Instead of death, there is life, both spiritual life and eternal life. Instead of disobedience, there's obedience. Instead of trespass, there's obedience. Instead of judgment, there's a gift. Instead of condemnation, there's justification. Instead of sinners, we're declared righteous. So Paul's saying, in Christ and through his death, his life, he lived a perfect life, he was righteous. His death, he paid the penalty for sin. And through his resurrection, now the power of sin is broken. 
And we've been focusing on so many weeks now, rightfully so, on the penalty is paid. Now we're moving into not only is the penalty of sin broken, now the power of sin is broken. Woo! That's going to be the next couple of weeks. Because there's one thing, absolutely, the penalty is broken. Now we're moving into Paul's movement. Not only is the penalty of sin paid, now the power of sin is broken. So you get freedom from the penalty of sin, but now we're moving into the good news. Now you get freedom from the power of sin. And where sin and death ruled and reigned and had power over your life, now, not only does Christ begin to rule in your life, it gets even better. You begin to reign in life, Paul says. So instead of being a puppet to sin, Instead of just being a free agent that your penalty's been paid, you get to now be an ambassador of Christ. You get to now be a son of God. You get now even to be a slave to Christ Jesus and his righteousness. Paul's doing some mind-blowing things here. You can be right with God, and you can say, okay, I can kind of get that. He paid the price, but a lot of times we just stop there. So now what do I do with the rest of my life? I just hold on till heaven comes and I'll just kind of be my own free agent. I'll just kind of try to do some good and everything. No, you've been bought with a price. Now you belong to Christ and now his power in you now enables you to live a life that pleases God. The penalty's been paid and now Paul begins to move in and we're gonna look at it more next week and the week after. The power of sin is also dealt with. Where sin reigned and ruled over us now, we reign in life through Jesus Christ. Where death reigned over us now, spiritual life is given to us in Christ and eternal life is in Christ. And one day when Christ returns, death will be defeated, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, because that's the last enemy to be defeated. And Angela said it this morning, death has defeated death. Hallelujah. It's good news. But here's the thing, you need to get out of Adam and you need to get into Christ. And sometimes we can read these verses and sometimes people believe, therefore, just because Adam sinned, therefore, we all sinned. Christ is the second Adam and because what Christ did on the cross, we're all saved. And we have to be careful to realize in verse 17, it says, for those who have received. So we don't believe in universalism that all will be saved because of what Jesus said. We, we need to put our faith and trust in Jesus and receive. This applies to all who have received. So here's my question for you this morning. For every single one of us, have you and I received this gift of righteousness and abundant provision of grace that Jesus provides? Verse 17, it's the verse that we have up here. For if by the trespass of the one man, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness like one man, Jesus Christ? So I'm asking the question again. Have you received? Do you know that you know that you know that you have received this gift of righteousness and this abundant provision of grace from Jesus Christ? If you're not sure, 
I would say now's the time. <clears throat> Today's the day of salvation. You can receive and make sure that you know that you have been transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. Now I'm going to give you a couple of reasons just in closing why we don't receive. Which is kind of a funny thing to say. Joe, what do you There's a couple of reasons why we don't receive. And who was it? Emma, Angela, it all blended together about how you got to die to some things first before you can... Two reasons why we don't receive. And I'm going to go quickly. I'm just going to call one legalism. And I'll give you some characteristics of legalism. And this is why we don't receive God's gift. Because in legalism, we view God as holy, but we don't see God as love. We want to earn our righteousness. We think that sin only affects individuals. Therefore, if I do enough, then I'm going to be better than most other people. Therefore, I'm going to get in. We get into guilt and we think, if I can just live a holy enough life, I'll get rid of my guilt by that way. And that we only repent of our sins. We don't repent of our good works. <laughs> Do you follow me on that? So sometimes we don't receive this gift. I, I receive this gift. Why? Because you're like, I don't need to receive a gift. I'm working pretty hard, thank you very much. I'm going to do it on my own. And I'm going to work hard enough, and gosh darn it, I'm going to be better than most people, and God's going to like me, and I'm going to earn it. And even if we do get a glimpse of the grace of God, I repent only of the bad things I've done. We don't repent from trying to earn salvation. So we become more self-sufficient and self-righteous. That prevents us from receiving the gift of righteousness and God's abundant provision of grace. Now here's another extreme, and I'm going to call it liberalism. This is another reason why we don't receive the grace of God, because we believe God is love, but we don't consider him holy, so therefore God's just going to love everyone and everybody gets in, because God's love. And you don't need perfect righteousness because you don't have a whole concept and reality of God is holy and set apart and righteous and fear and awe struck wonder before God. And we have no concept. We, we think God's love, he'll just accept us. God would never. And we're naive about sin. And we think as long as we just do good, so social action becomes the big thing without any need of salvation. And we don't deal with guilt because we convince ourselves that we're okay. And can I just add a warning to us as parents? Our culture influences so much to tell our kids self-esteem, self-image, and we just pound our kids, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. And of course we want to love them and we want to give them unconditional love, absolutely. But as they grow up, they're not okay. They're in Adam. <clears throat> and they need to get in Christ. And in liberalism, there's no need to repent from anything. Because really, there's no definition of right and wrong. And so if you don't think you need to receive a gift because there's nothing wrong with you, then why would you ever receive a gift? I don't need that. I'm glad that's for everybody else. I know that person. They really need some religion. <laughs> they really need a crutch. They need a life support system. But thank you very much. I'm doing okay. So legalism, I'm earning I don't need to receive a gift. No, 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 no. Better to give than to receive. Thank you very much. I don't need to receive it. Or liberalism. 
gift? I don't need a gift. We're all just God's children. And both of them prevent us from receiving the gift of righteousness and God's abundant provision of grace. And the gospel is this. The gospel of God is God is holy and God is love. And the two are intertwined. God is holy and God is love. And we need a perfect righteousness, but it's a gift from God that we receive. It's nothing that we can earn, but we all need it. Sin affects both individuals and sin affects society. Therefore, we need evangelism as we're doing today. We need to let people know that people need the gospel and we need social action. We need both. And a lot of times social action comes before we can share any good news about Jesus. We need both. That in order to deal with guilt, as we come through Jesus Christ, we can rest in Jesus. Ah, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. We can rest. My striving is gone. Oh, good. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Ah, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. He restores my soul because he's done everything and I can rest. He's dealt with my guilt. He's dealt with my shame. He's dealt with it. I don't have to try to work for it. I don't have to be so arrogant to think that I don't need it. I can rest in what he's provided. That I can repent of my sins that I know are wrong, but I can also do this. I can repent of all my self-righteous acts to try to make me right before God. I need to repent from both. I need to repent from the things I know make God disgusted. But I also need to repent from the things that I've tried to do that are good, that I think are going to make me right with God, because I'm not self-sufficient. I need to repent from both. And today, how do we receive? How do we receive this abundant provision of grace? How do we receive this gift of righteousness? Folks, it's very simple. It's profound, but it's simple. We need to believe God's word both about sin and his salvation that he's provided in Jesus Christ. We need to put our faith, we need to put our trust, I don't know how to say it, we need to put all the things in Jesus, that his work on the cross, that his perfect life, his resurrection are true, and I believe them, and I receive them, and they're for me. And we need to receive his free gift of forgiveness. I don't deserve it, Emma said it, or someone said it this morning, he get, we get what we don't deserve. That's the grace of God. We don't deserve it. So we can get mad at God and say, God, I don't deserve it, what Adam did. But we can also say, God, I don't deserve the benefits of what Christ did, but I receive them. And I'm going to let go of my pride, and I'm going to receive and say, Jesus, I'm with you. And we receive his Holy Spirit. Nicodemus, religious leader, came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do? And Jesus said, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus was like, what do you mean born again? Jesus said, you have to be born of the Spirit. How do you get out of Adam and into Christ? You get born again. Now you're given the Holy Spirit. You're given the Spirit of the living God to live and to reside in you that will now empower you and give you life here on planet Earth and he's a down payment, a guarantee of what's to come in eternity. 
so that one day when we meet him in the air, we're going to be with him forever. It's guaranteed. When I was in Adam, there's nothing I could do in and of myself to get out of Adam. And we believe when you're in Christ, there's nothing you can do to get yourself out of Christ. He keeps us secure because he's ever interceding for us. And we receive the benefits of now being in Christ. And Brent's going to provide this week via Facebook or website, all of the above. He's going to provide a sheet of all the truths of what it is to be in Christ. I don't have time to go through them all today. And I encourage you this week to rest. If you're a Christian, rest in the benefits of what it is to be in Christ. I think it's going to change your life. And if you're outside of Christ today, you can receive all the benefits. Because the good news is, this good news is for all the nations. This good news is for every one of us. And I'm going to close on this, and we'll pick it up next week. Can I just say this? If you're a Christian, and even if maybe today you're becoming a Christian, receiving his gift of righteousness, that's your justification, that just as if I'd never sinned, I'm declared righteous and holy before God. But don't miss out on this. Every single day, this is my last point, every single day, we get to receive the abundant provision of grace to reign in life for every single day through Jesus Christ. So what I'm saying is, maybe you, you don't consider yourself a Christian, and today you're going to say, I'm going to put a stake in the ground, I'm going to confess with my mouth, Jesus Lord, I'm going to believe in my heart, he did all these things, I'm going to be born again, hallelujah, and you can say, perfect day, hey, happy birthday, Kelly Curtis, because she became a Christian on February 14th, 1997. You could say, February 14th, 2016, I'm born again. It's my new birthday. Hallelujah. I received the gift of righteousness. And that's going to be absolutely true. But the good news is this. Tomorrow, Monday morning, and talking to Joel Glant this week when all heck broke loose last Monday morning at 7.30 a.m., good way to start a morning. Guess what? You can receive God's abundant provision of grace tomorrow morning for you to receive strength and power from God so that you can live a life that pleases God, that you can actually reign in life. And many times Christians remember, oh, I was saved on this day, and then we try to live this life on our own strength. No, don't do it. You'll be miserable. <clears throat> you can say, well, it was a great day, February 14, 1997. I got saved, but it's been terrible ever since. <clears throat> Why? Because you're trying to live a life on your own power, and you're missing out that every single day. So there's a one-time act in a sense that you're born again, but every single day you can receive God's abundant provision of grace through Jesus Christ to have power and strength and help to reign in life. That's not just a one-time deal. That's every single day. That's moment by moment. That's hour by hour. So seriously, folks, this is what I do. I'm there every day. Allah, God, I just receive now your abundant provision of grace. And I'm not just, I'm not just uh, positive thinking. It's true. God, I receive your strength and your power that you give because Jesus, you're ruling and reigning right now and you come and you give me that power so I can rule and reign. Not just for my own wishes and that, but I want to live a life that pleases Jesus and reflects him. And I need his power in order to do it. That's the benefit of being in Christ. Not only are you saved and the penalty of sin is paid, 
the power of sin is broken so that that doesn't have to rule and reign in your life anymore. You've got a new king, and actually he's made you a king. And his authority and his rule and reign is in your life. Folks, that's good news. That is the good news of being in Christ. And it's probably the two most important words maybe in the whole Bible is in Christ. Two words, but God, in Christ. Those are the... So as I close with a prayer, I'm asking the Holy Spirit, because only he can do it, to bring revelation to your heart and your mind and your will that maybe for the first time today you would realize that I'm in Adam and I need to get in Christ and that the Holy Spirit would show you that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, that he's the way for us to be born again, to be made right with God, sins forgiven, to live a new life, that I don't have to be ruled by sin and addictions and lustful thoughts and all these different things that maybe sometimes control my, that no one else might even know, but you know I'm not reigning in life and I'm not even sure of where I'm going to go when I die. In Christ today, those can be answered, and we can help you live those out in everyday life to the glory of God, to your good, and guess what? God's going to use you to tell this good news to others. So if you're able, why don't you stand? I'm going to pray that prayer, and then I'll hand things back to Brent. Lord Jesus, we just come to you, and we know that your word says that you're interceding for us right now. You're praying for us right now. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would give revelation, that you would illuminate, that you would enlighten, that you would wake people up as only you can do through the preaching of your word, through the teaching of your word. And I pray for salvation to come to this place today. And I pray that people will be born again today as they respond to this great truth of the gospel this gospel of God, this good news that's from God to us. And I pray that people would go from being in Adam to being in Christ. And I pray for those who are already in Christ that we would live in the good and the truth and the reality of that we can reign in life through Jesus Christ in his power and his grace and his righteousness. God, that you would be glorified in all these things that, God, you would transform hearts here today that would transform lives, that would transform society, that you would be glorified, planet Earth would become a better place, and that, God, from that, we would influence and communicate this good news to others, both in word and deed, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.